Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. This is episode 20. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzuma, and with me is our wonderful, wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Bowman. Hello, Glenn. Greetings, Christina, and greetings, everyone. Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I am Dr. Glenn Wallman. I will be your medical guide today and each week as we travel through the healthcare galaxy, searching for ways toward optimal health. How are you today? Blast off. Blast off. <laughs> Blast off. This is going to be a rocket ride today, too. Mm, I'm ready. I'm are holding you? on. <laughs> We're rocking and rolling on the ball today. That's right. That's a good thing to do. And I hope everyone is out there rocking with us. It should be fun. Uh, you know, part of, part of the program here is to educate people. And part of the education is, I think today, I would like to talk for a moment about uh, the education of physicians. You know, we go to medical school after college and then four years of college, then we go to medical school for four years, and then we go to uh, either an internship, which we used to go to, or a residency program, which could be anywhere from two to five or more years. And then people specialize even more and take even more training. And there are trainings or fellowships that, that some of the doctors that are really interested in delving deeper and learning more to help people with more specific things than uh, the general practitioners and others see. So they go through even more training and fellowships. Mm. And today, uh, our guest, uh, it's fascinating, I get to say this, he's a fellow of the American College of Chest Physicians, mm. which is a, a high level of training. And uh, But more than that, and also that, and I don't get to say this often, and I like saying this, he's a fellow of the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada. Ooh. So yeah, like <laughs> he's on our side of the border. <laughs> he is. He's an ambassador. He, um, this is Robert Wright, who is a pulmonologist in private practice in Santa Barbara. He's also a clinical professor of medicine at the Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. So mm -hmm. he's been, he did medical school at USC and he uh, did his other training at UCLA. He's an ambassador in America and uh, Canada. He's a great person, and I would like to welcome Dr. Robert Wright. How are you, Robert? Uh, thank you, Glenn. It's uh, nice to be on your program and uh, nice to uh, be dis discussing medicine with a uh, colleague and, and a neighbor, I might add. <laughs> Hello, right. Robert. Welcome to the show. Thank you for honoring us. Well, thank you very much. I'm looking forward to it. Robert, I usually, uh, as the medical guide, I try to... Uh, give a path uh, for our viewers today. And what we'll do is, as always, we try to learn a little bit about uh, our guest. So we want to know about your journey and what uh, brought you into medicine. And then we will go to more specific things about what you do in healing. We'll probably cover some anatomy and physiology of your specialty areas. We'll talk about uh, some of the current problems and current treatments that uh, you can enlighten us on so that each of us can make better medical decisions. How's that sound to you? Uh, that sounds great, Glenn. Yeah. Well, let's start. Uh, why don't you tell all of us 
about your journey, what you uh, decided to do, why you decided to go into healing, when, what were the influences, and lead us up to today. Well, um, you know, I have to have to think about that for a minute, but I think it really started when I was a, a, a child. I grew up in upstate New York. I was actually born in Canada and raised in upstate New York and then moved to California when I was a teenager. But um, I remember in my as a child, I was I'd like science. And my folks had some financial problems. And um, my dad always, you know, said, you know, son, you need a career. And so as, as a young person, I thought, well, what would be a career where I could always be employed. I actually was thinking practically and what would have science. And I, I knew I liked biology and science and somehow even in elementary school, I got this fixation in my mind that I wanted to be a doctor. And one of the things that I remember hearing about was doctors in the depression, even when people didn't have money, um, people would give them, um, uh, food, chickens, and things like that. Mm. Now, our economy is not that bad, and I'm not worried about that. But I always thought, you know, if I become a doctor, I not only can help people, but I'll always have a job. And I've always been, felt comfort, you know, a lot of comfort in that. Mm. Um, as I got older, it turns out my older brother went into cardiology and became a physician, so I had him to look up to. But there were really no other people in uh, my family that were physicians. But I kept that goal in mind. Um, for a while, I thought about other things. I actually almost went to graduate school in art history, but I always sort of kept that in the back of my mind, and I was uh, a science major in college, and I eventually went to medical school. I went to medical school. I really I enjoyed the science, and then I found I really – in fact, I was um, originally going to get a Ph.D. and an M.D. I was going to get a Ph.D. in biochemistry, but then I realized I really liked working with people. And once I started making content, contact with patients and doing uh, ward assignments and seeing all sorts of different life situations. I decided I wanted to be a clinician and I really wanted to, um, when I was going to medical school in, in the late seventies and early eighties, I wanted to, uh, be in, um, to do internal medicine because that was adult medicine. And at that time, it seemed like a lot of my peers, the really um, sharp people in my class wanted to go into internal medicine as specialties. Um, I thought thought about all sorts of different um, specialties, and one of the reasons I liked internal medicine, I like the challenge of sick people. Um, I really have a lot of respect for my um, colleagues that do um, general medicine, but and, and I still feel that way. But I wanted the challenge of taking care of the sickest patients. Um, I, I sort sort of always had this, and I still have this perception that you know, 90% of the stuff we see in the office, if you just give it time, it'll get better on its own. And I really do believe in a, a sort of an aspect of self healing, even though I'm, I guess some people would say, a highly trained specialist, and I use a lot of medicines. Um, that evolved, and after I did my residency in internal medicine at UCLA, like a lot of people, I met people at UCLA who mentored me, and initially I met uh, a, a very famous um, um, nephrologist named uh, uh, Chuck Kleeman. And nephrology um, is about the kidney, right? It's about the kidneys, and Chuck Kleeman uh, actually was uh, uh, um, helped start the Department of Medicine at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center. 
and he was a great guy and he was a kidney specialist and he, it was a very intellectual thing and it was fascinating. So I actually went and did a fellowship and trained in kidney medicine and then did it wow. for four years. And then this is this is after your medical school and your yeah. internal medicine training. Yes, yes. So I did uh, three years of internal medicine um, after medical school, and then I did three more years in uh, uh, nephrology, kidney um, kidney diseases. Um, so that's six years after medical school, and then I decided to go out and practice uh, kidney medicine for four years. And two things happened. One, I, I just sort of got bored with what I was doing, but it had a lot to do just with my personal life space at that time, and I needed a change. And I actually thought about leaving medicine altogether. Um, but then I really, you know, it was sort of one of those midlife crises in my life, actually when I was about 36. Yeah. I thought about it, and I realized that some of the issues that I had at that time had nothing to do with medicine. It just had to do with me. Um, and I decided to go back and retrain. And I decided that I really wanted the challenge of taking care of the sickest patients. So I went back to UCLA and I did another fellowship in what's called pulmonary and critical care medicine. Pulmonary medicine is the study of um, um, on lung diseases. Critical care medicine um, is uh, is the care of the sickest patients that end up in the intensive care unit. And as it turns out, about 90% of the intensive care specialists in the United States also are trained as lung specialists. So um, it was a combined specialty. And I really like the challenge of taking care of the sickest patients. Um, um, you, you know, the... the ability to save somebody that otherwise was just absolutely going to die and, and having that patient survive uh, is just it's just gratifying more than all the money in the world to me um obviously i deal with some patients that don't survive and i have to deal with that and i i think i try to say to myself well you know um there are some diseases we just can't take care of yet but a lot of the stuff I do now, I look back in just my career of about 20, 25 years, I, I now have people survive illnesses that 20 years ago just didn't survive. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, people with acute, what we call acute overwhelming lung injury, lots of patients, for example, with sepsis, that is bloodborne infection, we treat um, um, a lot better, a lot quicker. Uh, the survival rates have improved dramatically just in the five years, uh, even at our local hospital here in Santa Barbara. So I like those challenges, um, and uh, I enjoy that. I would say, just, I would throw on top of that, despite the fact that I like taking care of sick people, I also am interested in preventative medicine. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big uh, exercise uh, aficionado myself. I, I believe that... Uh, you know, uh, self-healing starts with your own attitude, your own uh, willingness to take care of yourself, uh, to exercise, to eat well, to moderate everything. I, I think if everybody did that, if we could get rid of smoking in the United States, we would just make the health of our uh, country so much better. Mm. So I don't know. That's sort of a short version. Um, I could go on, but it would probably be boring. <laughs> Well, I'm not bored yet. Keep going. <laughs> yes, I don't think so. I think that uh, wow. that was a very beautiful sharing for mm. us, uh, and it took us on a great journey of yours. So I thank you for that. That was really 
really nice. Uh, and we're going to probably talk more as we go through the day about uh, critical care and end of life and things like that, because those are things uh, that I'm familiar with also in the emergency department. But I think it would be a, a really good idea to maybe give some people a little anatomy and physiology of the lungs so that when we start talking about some diseases, they can understand them a little better, maybe get some more insight into how why you treat things a certain way and what they need to avoid, et cetera. So maybe uh, just a little anatomy of uh, the lungs and the trachea, the respiratory tree, and also maybe the uh, physiology of how breathing occurs, et cetera. Well, I think the simplest analogy is a blacksmith bellows. Um, you all remember the bla a blacksmith? And, and <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. Do people remember what that is? Yeah. <laughs> Who that is? <laughs> yes. Under the spreading chestnut tree, the village smithy stands. <laughs> you mean that one? Uh, simply that. We have um, so a blacksmith fanning the fire with um, a bellows, and like this. If you can see that on, on the screen, okay. Your um, lungs, your chest is basically just one big bellows. And the way you breathe, the way you move air into your chest is simply a mechanical movement. You expand your lungs and then you relax your muscles and uh, air passively moves out of your lungs. So inhalation is an active motion. And it turns out that there are two large muscles on each side of the uh, of your chest, the diaphragm. The diaphragms are these large muscular structures that separate the lungs from the abdominal cavity. And these um, muscles contract and um, they pull, uh, they, they basically um, expand the lung cage. And it's that expansion like a blacksmith bellows, when you're pulling the bellows open, that sucks air into the chest. And then as you relax, the bellows relaxes and squeeze air out of the chest. And of course, the conduit is your mouth and your main windpipe, your trachea. Okay? So you breathe in through your mouth and your nose. You suck it in because of this expansion of your chest. And then as you relax, um, as you passively relax, air just um, is expelled out of the lungs. Now, it turns out that the trachea breaks up into, a, um, into bronchial tubes. There's a main bronchial tube that goes to the right lung. There's a main bronchial tube that goes to the left lung. Then the main bronchial tube in the right lung breaks up into several more bronchi. It basically is genesis. So let's think about Genesis. If you go back to Genesis and Adam and Eve begat, you know, so and so and so and so and so and so. It's 26 generations of, um, of little tubes or conduits that get smaller and smaller. Hmm. These little tubes get so small that basically they're smaller than a, um, the diameter of a pin. And then they break up into little grape-like structures that are called alveoli. Now, uh, these alveoli are um, little structures that are connected to thin um, vessels called capillaries that are carrying blood 
from um, the uh, heart to the lungs. And then they take the blood from the lungs back uh, to the heart again, and then the blood is transported to the tissues. The transfer of oxygen um, into the bloodstream takes place between these little alveoli and these little capillaries, and there are about 2 billion of them. So there's lots and lots of these little um, alveoli, and um, it's at this level, this microscopic level where a lot of diseases occur. Um, uh, diseases that we might talk about, for example, one disease is called pulmonary fibrosis. Another is called emphysema. And emphysema, uh, that's a smoking-related disease. All these little alveoli disappear. And when they disappear, there's just not enough surface space for oxygen to transfer from your lungs into the bloodstream. Mm -hmm. And people oxygen, and they become short of breath for a variety of reasons. Um, diseases, um, lung diseases affect the lungs in different ways. Um, for example, asthma is a disease that affects the main bronchial tubes. Um, it doesn't affect the little small air sacs, but it affects the small, it affects the bronchial tubes. And what happens is a bronchial tube, instead of being um, dilated, becomes constricted and inflamed. And you will see that um, um, people with asthma are taking inhalers. And what those inhalers do is they get into the bronchial tubes quick, quickly and help dilate uh, and reverse the uh, uh, constriction of the uh, bronchial tubes. Um, there are diseases that affect the circulation to the lung. For example, one of the most common things that we see is what we call pulmonary emboli. Those are blood clots that travel to the blood vessels of the uh, lung, uh, usually from the legs and down in the pelvis. And the most common things that cause that are um, um, prolonged um, sitting, for example, on an airline uh, flight, you know, transcontinental flight. I must several times a year, I'll see somebody with blood clots. And the mm -hmm. other thing is birth control pills in women, um, um, estrogen, particularly Elevated levels of estrogen uh, can potentially cause uh, clotting uh, in some women, not all women. And I'm sure you're all aware of the advertisements you see on TV associated with a certain birth control pill um, and contact your lawyer if you've had a blood clot. Um, oh Rob, uh, uh, yes. I was going to ask you about the, uh, the nervous system and breathing before we move into some of the other little diseases that we have, how uh, where breathing actually starts and what controls the diaphragm and things like that. Well, um, fortunately, breathing is um, involuntary. In other words, you don't have to think about it. But uh, it turns out that in your lower brain, what we call the brainstem, um, which is the highest part of your spinal cord, controls breathing. And there is a little center, what we call a respiratory center of the medulla that triggers respiration. And you don't have to think about it most of the time. Now, it turns out occasionally people have brain injuries or strokes uh, and uh, people have to think about breathing. It's a very rare phenomenon, but I just recently saw it. It's um, Some people call it Andine's curse, a little piece of history. On Dean was a 
um, Greek um, king. And uh, his daughter was dating a young man. And the young man jilted him, uh, jilted her. And King Andin said, oh, my gosh, um, I don't like the way you behave. I, I, I'm putting a curse on you, and you have to think about breathing for the rest of your life. So Andin's curse is, uh, is, so to speak, is a condition in which you actually have to voluntarily uh, contract your diaphragms. So in other words, and, um, for most of us, essentially all of us, we don't have to think about breathing, but we can override that and take deep breaths when we want to. Um, so, um, uh, you know, if I want to, if I want to take an, an extra breath, I just go and do that. I don't, I'm thinking about it, but most of the time I'm not thinking about the breathing, which brings up a, a very interesting, um, uh, clinical scenario that you don't realize you just asked. And that is lots of patients come to my office complaining of shortness of breath. And, and there are lots of reasons to be short of breath. But some of the time, it ends up being anxiety. Some, um, when people become anxious, they start thinking about their breathing. They, um, they, they think, oh, my gosh, I can't, I can't catch my breath. Um, I'm having trouble breathing. Now, it's up to the lung doctor to decide um, that there's not a medical condition other than anxiety uh, um, causing that. And generally, we'll do a series of tests. We might do a chest x-ray. We'll do an exam, some simple breathing tests. But sometimes, and, and not infrequently, and probably a couple times a month, I will see somebody who's going through a lot of mental anguish, stress, a divorce, financial problems, and it really boils down to they're anxious. And one of the key features of this type of breathing is they'll give the history like this. They'll say, I can't catch my breath, but every now and then um, I can. If I just take a deep breath and go, I'm okay for a minute. Um, so when you hear this, these, this complaint of yawning and deep sighing respirations, it's kind of a, a tip-off. Another tip-off is you ask these individuals, well, what about when you start doing something or you're exercising? They'll say, oh, I'm fine. And generally, the thought there is when you start doing something, you're not thinking about your problems. You're more relaxed. If you're in the process, you're in motion or if you're exercising um, or you're walking fast, it's not the same sort of shortness of breath that you get when you exercise hard. So, so there is certainly a voluntary um, um, mechanism to breathing, but fortunately, most of the time we don't have to. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to fall asleep at night. That sounds like a terrible curse to have. Uh, that's amazing that even among the Greeks and mythology, they still had daughters and boyfriends and jiltings and curses, etc. You know, it's, in <laughs> it's interesting for Don't me because uh, as you spoke, the autonomic nervous system or that part of the brainstem takes care of a lot of the things that we don't have to consciously think about, like our heartbeat and temperature control and, and uh, like we said, breathing and pHs in the body. And one of the only ones that we can connect with is the breathing system. As you said, we can take a deep breath. We can hold our breath. We can change our breathing for a little while anyway. And that seems to be one of the most interesting parts for me about the concepts of meditation because most of the 
of people that train people to meditate or teach people to meditate start simply with watching the breath, looking at the breath, taking control. And I always felt that part of that was that it's, it seems to connect us to our lower brainstem and then we can become uh, more grounded and centered and then we go into deeper forms of meditation. Do you have any thoughts on that? And I agree with you 100%, and I have a, a personal example of that. And, um, this past weekend, um, my grandchildren were in a wedding, and they were the flower girls and the ring bearer. And my granddaughter, Gwen, um, was just a doll, a cute little girl. Um, about five minutes before the wedding, she just started having a meltdown. She, she was scared, you know, she was starting to cry. And her mother, who was also in the wedding, and said, Dad, you got to take care of Gwen. Help her out. Help her out. She's panicking. So I went over to her. I, I knelt down next to her, and I said, Gwen, look at Grandpa. Look at Grandpa. Take a deep breath in. Breathe out. Take a deep breath in. Breathe out. We did that for about um, 30 seconds. And voila, even with a four-year-old. It really worked. So absolutely, and I know myself that breathing, as much as we talk about it being involuntary, voluntary breathing and slowing your breathing down uh, and, and just re relaxing and doing rhythmic breathing helps a lot. I, I do this uh, myself all the time. In fact, I think I'll do it right now. Uh, <laughs> Perfect. Uh, we'll all um, do it with you. You know, I, there's a lot to do, a lot to that. And I do think um, uh, meditation um, is, um, is very helpful. It's interesting. I'm not an expert on meditation, but I believe in it. Um, and my understanding from the great yogas and a lot of people that meditate is that people that are really good at it and not only slow their breathing down, but they, they can actually control those things that we think you can't control such as heart rate. And, um, and, and I, I, I've noticed that myself. I, I try to actually, I tried that myself. And I think if you really relax, you can slow your heart rate down a little bit. I think, uh, you know, you can just relax the whole system and feel a lot better. Um, um, so breathing, you can control it. And I think some of the other, um, you know, some meditating probably has uh, effects. Well, it certainly has effects on heart rate and probably has a lot of effects on uh, your nervous system and just calming the whole system down and, and, and being better uh, able to do the things that you really want to do. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, uh, for uh, me, it's just so wonderful to, to hear you saying all this, um, uh, Dr. Wright, because growing up, I come from a family that has this lineage of asthma and other illnesses and eczema, which is all connected, they, they say, and, uh, you know, having grown up with inhalers, like four, <laughs> to get me through each day. And, you know, um, it, it's really interesting because, you know, I'm the youngest of six and uh, the black sheep, of course. And I have other siblings that are older uh. than me. <laughs> yes, truly bad. You know? um, and it, it was so wonderful because, you know, I lost my father when he was very young. And I think I was about 10 or 11 years old. And I, by that point in time, I was like doing phys ed, maybe 50 percent 
of the time, not allowed to go out because of, you know, shortness of breath all the time, uh, uh, the asthma kicking in, allergies, etc. You know, very frustrating as a young child, especially me, very active, very frustrated. Um, and when my father passed away, I just said, you know, I'm done. <laughs> I'd rather go with him than stay here and deal right. with all this. So um, I, re I had remembered one time my father said to me, you know, if, if you didn't have these issues with your lungs, you would be one of the best sprinters out there in track and field. Whatever made him say that, I, I don't know. And the year that he died, I, I said, I'm packing it in. You know, they, I said, I, I'm going out there and, you know, having the big sports day at school. And I was only 11. And I remember saying to my mother, if I die on that track, I'm at least going to be with dad now. <laughs> but I'm going to give it my best shot. And against even the teachers who had my mother sign a consent form and everything, I went out that day without training and ran and took home the trophy that that sports day. And from that point on, I continued to run. And no matter how hard the struggle was, it, to me, completely reversed everything that was going on in my body. I started to get stronger. I started to do cross-country running, long-distance running. By the time I was 15, 16, I was running with a fireman down the street three miles every morning. And the inhalers just started getting dumped in the garbage can, <laughs> you know, and people would tell me, well, that's just because, you know, you've grown out of it, which I don't so much believe it was growing out of it, but actually strengthening, you know, the, the, the part that was so weakened. And the more that I stayed away, the worse it got. And I see that in my sibling, you know, one of my siblings now, who as he's gotten older in his 50s, it's a struggle. It's a struggle. It's always that having to take that deep breath, you know, and the children going into the hospital for emergencies. And I'm going, no, have them blow balloons, have them hike, <laughs> you know. And it's so wonderful to just hear you say about the exercise and about how when you're exercising, your mind is off of it. And I, I think it's just magnificent to hear you say that. Thank you so much. You. You, this is a great segue with the, the Olympics coming up. So um, I feel very strongly about asthma. So let me let me tell you some things people don't know. Um, and I, mean, I could probably talk for hours on this. And for one thing, asthma. Asthma, 30, 40 years ago, you know, pediatricians used to say, right, don't exercise. Um, it hurts you. Now look at today. There are world-class athletes that have in fact, severe asthma. Jackie Joyner, who has won, uh, has set multiple world records as uh, uh, an elite woman track athlete, takes a lot of asthma medications. And, and wow. so, um, so I would have to say that the medicines do work. You should take them if your doctor feels you need them. But, but exercise is key also. So, and another really uh, interesting fact is at the last two summer olympics between 30 and 40 you're not going to believe this between 30 and 40 athletes won gold medals and had asthma and, and wow. so if 40 of the athletes that are winning gold medals have asthma 
that tells you that a large number of um, um, athletes at the Olympics have asthma. You know, particularly look at swimmers. I mean, a lot of pe- kids with swimming that have been swimmers um, have asthma. I think it's it's thought that I think a lot of people are in the perception that um, um, that um, you know being in the water is good. It doesn't dry out the lungs. It's good exercise and so forth. And I think there is something to that. Now, uh, at the last Summer Olympics, I can't remember the name of the uh, athlete. Um, one of the swimmers set a world record one day um, mm. with asthma, asthma medications. The next day, he had to drop out. So, you know, um, how do you look at that? Well, I'm, I don't look at that as the glass is half empty. I look at it as half full. How mm. remarkable that we now have athletes set world records with asthma. But like a lot of asthmatics, they they go through the frustration. They're going to have good days and bad days. Mm-hmm. So um, asthma can, is a disease that certainly can be controlled. It turns out that there are about 5,000 Americans that die every year with asthma. Mm-hmm. Now, um, this common association with dying from asthma is not using the inhalers. So a lot of people have a misconception about the inhalers. Um well, let's talk about medicines in general in terms of the lungs. We tend to use inhalers because it gets to where the money is quickest. Hmm. Um, we call that, by the way, Willie Sutton's law. Um, Glenn, I think what Willie Sutton's law is. Know where the bank, aside, the money is. Willie Sutton was a famous bank robber in the 30s. And when he finally got caught, the journalists interviewed him and they said, Willie, why do you rob banks? And he said, because that's where the money is. Well, in medicine, we use inhalers because where the money is. If you give a medic inhaled, it goes straight to the bronchial tubes and gets into the lungs almost immediately. Whereas if you give a medicine by mouth, you generally have to give it in a concentration hundreds of times higher than, it, than the inhaled dose. Why? Because it has to go get into the stomach, then pass into the intestines, then pass from the intestines into the liver circulation, where it gets metabolized in the liver and uh, degraded. Then it has to circulate to the um, heart, then out to the lung tissues, and then it has to be in high enough concentration that it gets out to the bronchial tubes. So we tend to use inhalers. And so people, when they think about inhaled medications, they're worried about some of the side effects. So, for example, in asthma, most asthma inhalers, there are two types of inhalers. We have what we call maintenance inhalers and rescue inhalers. And the rescue inhaler usually is a medication called albuterol. And what albuterol does is it dilates up the airway, but it only lasts for about four to six hours, so then you have to keep using it. The other inhalers generally a little bit of topical cortisone. And the cortisone gets into the airway and it cuts down the inflammation. The amount of cortisone in most inhalers is like a quarter of a milligram, a quarter of a milligram. Your body basically makes 30 to 40 milligrams of um, hydrocortisone every day. So we're talking 200 times more than you take in the inhaler. Yet people get all freaked out about the inhalers. Um, one of the reasons is, is that cortisone in large doses can cause cataracts, glaucoma, 
osteoporosis, thinning of the skin. But in the inhaled doses, most of these side effects are either non-existent or minimal or can be moderated. So my experience is when you tell people with true asthma about the side effects, what can happen, they'll take the medication because they function so much better. Particularly, you will find world-class athletes, um, they know that if they take their medications on a regular basis, their lung capacity will improve. And particularly when they're children and they're growing, studies have shown that um, their vital capacity will be better than those asthmatic children that don't take medicine. So it's very important, particularly in the pediatric age group. We have found that a, a lot of there's a lot of misinformation with parents and even pediatricians about the safe, safety of these medications. So let's talk about the asthma, untreated asthma. If you don't treat asthma, um, as I said, up to 5,000 people a year uh, in the United States die. Um, and there is a direct correlation uh, be between those that die and not using their inhaler. Mm. Uh, on the other hand, people that regularly use medication under supervision tend to do better. Another thing is that untreated asthma, now, if you have asthma as a child, some people will probably outgrow it a little bit, um, simply because what happens is you, as you age, your airways get bigger as you grow. Um, and the resistance of um, air in an airway is, um, is inversely proportional to its diameter to the fourth power. What does that mean? That means that, well, if you're having an asthma attack, a small decrement in, in the diameter of the airway or constriction of the airway will greatly lead to resistance of flow of air into the lung. How does that work? Just you want to think about the math. Um, if you have a tube and you decrease the diameter in half, one half, that's one over two to the fourth power. It means that the resistance when you make the diameter in half goes up 16-fold, 16 times. That's why people with a little bit of what we call bronchoconstriction or constriction of the airway and asthma, why um, a little bit of constriction makes them feel very short of breath. And if you have marked constriction of the um, airflow, it can be dangerous. It's a condition we call status asthmaticus, and people can develop respiratory failure and die. Mm. But again, the, probably the most common association with that, with that type of asthma is failure to follow a medical regimen. There are other causes of status asthmaticus, though, just to, just to be aware of. Some people are just profoundly allergic to um, um, certain um, things that they inhale, say certain pollens. Um, I had a young woman uh, a couple years ago who was a student out at the university. She knew she was very allergic to cats. And for mm -hmm. some reason, she got it in her mind that she'd like to buy her roommate as a present a guinea pig. She went to a pet store, bought the guinea pig, put it in the car, um, started to get so short of breath. By the time she arrived at the emergency room out in Goleta, she'd passed out, crashed the car, and she was unconscious because she wasn't breathing. And that's how quickly certain types of asthma can occur. 
But that's unusual. And people like that generally have to see an allergist and get under a regimen where they can take uh, medication instantly if they start having an attack like that. Usually that would be something what we would call an EpiPen where you inject yourself with epinephrine. Mm -hmm. um, most people with asthma that's not controlled, it's due to the fact that they're afraid of medications and they don't take them on a regular basis. Another thing that you know is that you can lose half of your vital capacity. The vital capacity is basically how much air you can inhale and exhale. You, if you're not exercising, if you're a sedentary person, you won't even start to note symptoms of um, breathlessness until you lose half of your vital capacity. So that's another reason that lots of people are surprised um, that they have lung problems later in life. It goes something like this. Mr. Jones is overweight. He's been smoking, and he hasn't done anything for years. At age 52, he says, you know, I want to get in shape. He's been a couch potato for years. He's been smoking for years. And all of a sudden, he starts running or walking or just you know, trying to walk a mile, and he finds he can't do it. He goes in and sees the doctor, and the doctor says, my gosh, your lung capacity is 40% of normal. And he goes, well, how can that be? Well, my explanation is, well, you haven't stressed yourself. You haven't pushed yourself. You, you, you've never stressed the system to even um, um, put any limits on it. And now that you're starting to do just simple exercise, you now find that you've got significant lung disease. So another thing that I say to people, particularly people that have childhood asthma, is go see your doctor, and you can get a simple test called spirometry. Spirometry is a test where we put a little mouthpiece up your mouth. We ask you to inhale deeply and then exhale as fast as you can, and we can measure the volume of uh, air and exhalation um, over uh, a unit of time very quickly, and we can tell, you know, really um, uh, how well your lungs, the bellows works in moving air. It's one of the key tests. It's a very simple test. Uh, it actually costs about twenty to thirty dollars uh, um, uh, to get done if you go to a doctor's office, and it's really a simple screening measure. I think you covered asthma pretty well for <laughs> most of us right now. Thank you. I, uh, and that brings up so many uh, other points, and I would like to focus for a few moments. Uh, we talk about disease all the time, and you've mentioned a few of these things. We talk about disease. The best way to deal with disease is to not have it and prevent it. So in our day today, when you're seeing all the things you see in the environment, are there toxins we can avoid in the environment? What are the preventive things and what are the healthy tips sort of that you can give us about uh, taking care of our lungs before they start to go bad? Well, sort of as they say right now in politics, it's about the economy, stupid. As a lung doctor, I have to say it's about it's about smoking, stupid. Um, <laughs> so, smoking, smoking, smoking. Did I say it's about smoking? I, I was going to ask you about smoking. What do you think of that? So one of the most interesting things is um, about the whole debate about uh, cigarettes and advertising. Um, I just have to bring this up. Um, 
most countries in, in um, the developed world actually have very strong uh, anti-smoking campaigns. For example, in Australia, I was there in 1998, you get a package of cigarettes. Um, they'll have a skull, um, um, instead of the logo of the Lucky Strike or whatever, they'll have um, the name of the cigarette um, manufacturer in small print, and then they'll have a, um, a skull with crossbones on it, no smoking. And then on the flip side, they'll have a picture of diseased lungs or lung cancer. Wow. So, and in fact, there was a recent movement to, to do that. And, and I believe the Supreme Court turned that down and said that the, that, uh, the um, 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 that federal authorities don't have the authority to make the cigarette manufacturers do that. But this gets mm -hmm. to my point. The people that are, um, the cigarette manufacturers know that if you can get a teenager to smoke, you've got them for life. And um, those, you know, most teenagers and people in their uh, early 20s, they believe they're invincible and they believe smoking won't hurt them. What they don't realize is once they start smoking, after about five years, they're hooked. They're going to be the they're going to be the people smoking um, in their um, 30s and 40s and 50s. Now, here in California, we we you know cigarette smoking has declined. It's interesting though, women and there are more women smokers than men. And what I just have to throw this in: what's the number one killer of women in the world? Is it breast cancer? Or is it oh. lung cancer? It is lung cancer. And, wow. Uh, and it's lung cancer. It's not breast cancer. Um, but we don't get that press probably because um, most people feel that um, cigarette smoking is a self-control issue. It's a self-inflicted disorder. But in fact, it, it is a real um, major um, health issue for women and men. Yeah. So it is smoking. Air pollution is, is certainly a thing. Um, uh, you know, I was glad uh, uh, to move out of Los Angeles, quite frankly. And I know um, probably a lot of our audiences in Los Angeles here up in Santa Barbara. Uh, I'm, we do get some of the environmental pollution from um, uh, Los Angeles, but I do believe air quality is better. I know air quality, they say, in Los Angeles has improved. Um, and uh, I think it's important to keep working on that. I think all the, you know, the thing that uh, we can do as society is to work on uh, automotive emissions and green gases and really try to uh, decrease that. You know, it's the uh, uh, it's the nitric uh, it's the nitric uh, nitrogen dioxide, sulfur, things like that that are very harmful to the lung. Air pollution is certainly a factor. You can show that children that grow up in an urban area. Um, have, um, on average, um, um, less lung development than those that live in a clean air rural environment. Mm -hmm. So smoking and air pollution are the things that we really can work on. Uh, the only thing, you know, if you're committed um, um, non-smoker like I am, um, you, you know, you've taken care of yourself. The only thing that I can do is, is um, you, know, vote, you know, vote for people that will push even stronger anti-smoking measures um, you know, locally, nationally, you know, do everything to uh, put the tobacco co companies out of business. Rob, you're the course. Yeah, thank you again for that. Uh, we all need to take part in our health on many levels, not only personally, but in communities and mm -hmm. 
nationally. I agree with that. And you're speaking from being national in two countries. You're the course chairman of pulmonary and critical care now at UCLA uh, in pulmonary and critical care medicine. Are you a course chairman or were you? Um, I, I, um, I, after I trained at UCLA, I stayed on as a full-time faculty member at UCLA and, and um, had a job teaching, um, doing clinical research and teaching medical students and residents. When I came up here, I still have a clinical appointment and we have medical students um, from UCLA and, uh, that come up and do a rotation at our hospital. Uh, we probably have about eight a year that do that. And they spend a two, three-week um, rotation, and we mentor them. Um, as you know, medical training is an apprenticeship, both at the medical st student level and at the resident level. In other words... Um, young medical students and residents, they see patients, but they are doing so under the supervision of um, people that are in practice uh, and in this day and age are generally certified in their specialty and, um, and have um, training in, um, in, you know, teaching them. And uh, so we have them uh, there at UCLA, uh, and like all medical students, all medical schools, I should say, medical students have a variety of electives that they can take so they can do a pulmonary um, or, and critical care rotation at a variety of hospitals, including UCLA, Cedars, Sinai Medical Center, Harbor, other places, and including our hospital here in Santa Barbara. So basically, these students come up and spend about two weeks with us and I and a few of my associates, um, we uh, see patients with them. They see our patients. We we talk about them. Um, uh, they're they're supervised. They're not allowed to write any orders without our signature. And uh, this is the way they learn. What is it that you are teaching them now, based on what you see currently out there in terms of the most common diseases, in terms of uh, the newest diagnostic uh, acumen and treatments? What are you teaching these students based on? what you're seeing today? Well, you know, we try to go, when we're teaching them, we try to te teach them basic anatomy and physiology. We talk about disease processes. Um, in the intensive care unit, um, we talk a lot about ventilators. Uh, a lot of our, um, probably half the patients that we have in the intensive care unit um, are connected to a ventilator where we have a tube that goes through their mouth um, into their windpipe, and then it's connected to a machine called a ventilator, and we actually breathe for the patient. There, we're actually um, um, triggering the uh, ventilation, triggering the breast of the patient. Um, we, um, we teach them about pneumonias. We teach them about uh, cancers. Uh, we lots of times are seeing patients that uh, have been treated for cancer and might have severe infections as a result of the complication of the chemotherapy. Uh, it, it's a variety of things, Glenn. It's, it's not any uh, single thing. Um, we try to teach them uh, um, the basics of critical care um, when they're in the intensive care unit, basic life support, um, um, what we call the ABCs, um, airway, breathing, circulation, the basic things that keep a, a patient alive, you know, um, you know, making certain that they provide the basic uh, 
attention to those things before they get uh, off onto the nuances of, uh, you know, more detailed therapies. For example, you know, it really doesn't matter what antibiotic you're giving a patient if they're not breathing. So you've got to, you know, establish the basic things in terms of life support and, and so on. Mm. I'm not sure I can, you know, in terms of a philosophy, um, I, you know, I, I tell the students to, to try to be as detailed as possible. Um, and, uh, I, you know, in the intensive care unit, it's very easy to uh, sort of get detached from the human being because sometimes these patients are comatose and unable to communicate. I tell this that even a comatose patient, you don't know what they're hearing or experiencing. Talk to them like they're a normal human being. You know, it, it's a tendency sometimes in the intensive care unit to walk in and shout at the patient. And I say, you don't need to shout at them. Just talk to them like they're normal. Even if they don't respond back to you, just talk to them normally. Yeah, um, I have a question about uh, when you're in critical care and you put someone on a respirator, that means you're breathing from them and family members are coming in and sometimes there's a question of this could be the end of life. Do we turn off the respirator? Do we leave on the respirator? I'm sure you're involved in those discussions, aren't you? Oh, absolutely. Um, and Share, share know, some of your experiences with us and at the end of life and helping people to make a decision. That's a very big decision mm -hmm. to turn off a respirator for somebody. Yeah. I think that's one of the most uh, difficult decisions we make as doctors. And I, that's the hardest thing about my specialty. And you often have to be circumspect about it. Um, you know, um, often the media and patients think, well, aren't you playing God and, uh, or being godlike when you're involved in these discussions, and and you know I think that's very valid criticism. Um, so before I answer that, I'm, I'd like to point out a few things, and which um, um, we we need to know first as a society. First, fifty percent of our Medicare budget is spent on the last six months of life, and I will be the first to admit that I see lots of patients in the intensive care unit that I know from the bottom of my heart are going to die. I just saw a 94-year-old man that had metastatic cancer just two weeks ago. He insisted on everything being done. I, and my, as a doctor, you've got to understand, when on a one-to-one -one basis, the patient has the right to decide. Patient has the autonomy to make a decision, and I will always honor that decision, even if I don't agree with it. Um, but sure enough, this man with widely metastatic cancer, a day later, just had a massive heart attack, and we couldn't re revive him. Now, um, as it turns out, he was only in the ICU for a day, but that was still a very expensive stay. We have lots of patients in their 90s now that terminal diseases and the families won't give up. Um, and in fact, there was the, um, I, I remember about a year ago on 60 Minutes, they interviewed the um, head of the Dartmouth um, Medical Center intensive care unit. And he said something that's very true of Americans. The denial of death is very strong. I mean, none of us want to die, but we have to be realistic that at some point, um, we're not going to make it. And I think our society 
for whatever reason, um, compared to, say, for example, um, traditional um, Asian cultures where people die at home um, and with their family. Um, you know, there's a lot less of this really aggressive intervention at the end of life. Now, that's not to say I don't support doing aggressive things. I want to try to save a person that I can. But there has to be a recognition um, with people that sometimes, no matter what we do, it's not going to work. And when you get to that point, um, I try to be honest. And I don't say I know for a fact, but I'll say, I'll say to the family, I'll say, look, dad, in my judgment, is not going to survive. And they'll say, well, how can you, how can you say that? Well, I, I have to say, look, I, I've been doing this 20, 25 years, and, and I've almost never seen anybody survive an illness when it's this severe. And then they'll generally say something like, well, um, you know, we don't know what to do. And then I, I, I lead a conversation. I try to have it open-ended. I say, well, let's, what would your dad want? Lots of times they say, well, I don't know. He wants everything done. And, and then you say, well, does he really? I mean, have you ever heard him talk about things in the past? I mean, sometimes they'll reflect back and they'll say, yeah, he was watching a movie and he saw somebody in life support. And he'll say, I never want that. And, and then other, thing, other questions you have to ask. You have to ask the question, well, what was your dad's life before he got sick two weeks ago? Well, if he was really vibrant and um, walking up um, uh, mountains, playing tennis, you know, fully cognitive and, uh, uh, you know, um, um, having um, a, a good level of cerebral functioning, maybe you really want to be um, aggressive. But, for example, if the, the person has got, uh, uh, for example, severe kidney disease and on, is on dialysis, is blind, uh, can't walk or even take care of their basic needs, you have to say, well, well, let's be honest here. Their quality of life is was not very good. What are we doing here? And lots of times when you have discussions with families like that, they'll say, well, gosh, doctor, you're really right. And when you point out that they're probably not going to make it, um, um, the, the, the situation might change. Now, mind you, we never will make a decision to withdraw support unless we have consensus. I just don't do it. Um, most people will have a decision maker such that if the patient can't make a decision, they can make a decision. And I like to point out that what we do in the 21st century it is different than we did in the first half of the 20th century. The stuff we do in the ICU, I consider unnatural. We're doing aggressive things to keep people alive and sometimes good. But when it comes to withdrawing support, all you're doing is stopping those unnatural things. It's huh. different than what people call euthanasia. Some people are worried that we're just going to kill patients and give them an overdose of a medicine. We don't do that. That's illegal. What we're allowed to do in the United States and basically all the European countries I know of is if a family decides they want to withdraw support and we agree, then what you do is you give them medicine to make certain that they don't suffer, and then you just withdraw the, t the stuff that you were doing that was keeping them alive artificially. Usually that means taking 
them off the ventilator. It doesn't kill them instantly. It just basically uh, doesn't give them the support that was giving keeping them alive. And most people, when they understand that, don't feel guilty about that. I try to tell people that you can't you can't make a decision that's going to make you guilty. You cannot um, you cannot think that you're doing something to end their life when it was a disease process and just being old that led to the end of their life. We did. Uh, thank you for that. That mm-hmm. was really well said. Uh, you could tell that comes from your heart and a lot of experience. We had a discussion with Michael Bordofsky, who you know, who runs the hospice, and we did spend a lot of time talking about end of life. And I think one of the things that you brought up, which is most important, is that as a group of individuals, we need to have these conversations with everyone in the family and and make these decisions and let people know you're not giving up your right to life. You're just helping people to make decisions when uh, things get critical, as as you say. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm, um, give you an antidote. My mother, both my parents are dead, but um, and, and they got quite uh, weak, and, and they died in their late 80s and early 90s. And my mother, would, unfortunately, had to go to a nursing home. But she she was um, quite years before when she was very alert and able to make a decision. She said, Robert. I don't want life support. Well, sure enough, um, she had a cardiac arrest, and the doctor on call, um, instead of looking at the directive, looked that and saw that, oh, her son is a doctor. He'll want everything done. And put my mom on life support. And I had to go and withdraw life support of my mother. I didn't like doing that, but I, I knew that's what mm-hmm. she wanted. Interestingly enough, I said to the doctor, I said, well, why did you do that? And they said, well, because you're a doctor. And I said, well, why would you treat me any differently any other patient? I said, you should have honored our wishes and my mom's wishes. Not tr- You know, by treating me special, you treated me worse than you treat your average patient. You didn't honor our wishes. But, but at least for me, with my mother, she had made it really clear. And I knew her quality of life was very poor, and 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 I knew that I had to do my duty as a son and let her go, and I did, and 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 I've never regretted that decision. Perfect. We did the same with our parents. Uh, I always ask uh, our guest for a special health. Yep. Glenn, before yes. you do that, um, there's a question that came in. Oh, sure. <laughs> we can ask that after the question. Oh, well, no, no. I want to be. Oh, uh, let's give no. a, uh, <laughs> um, a question that came in. It was about, uh, it says here, um, what are your thoughts on tuberculosis? Is uh, Tuberculosis. I'm, I'm glad you asked that. I just um, diagnosed the case two weeks ago. And. Um, uh, and it was in advanced, and uh, the public health authorities are now uh, administering drugs on this person. Mm. Um, well, one thing, it's out there, and um, for a variety of reasons, but mostly due to world travel, it can happen in any one of us, and you may not know where you get it. Um, in fact, we know that tuberculosis is highly infectious, 
it's an airborne infection. What that means is when a person with tuberculosis exhales, it's um, in in the air uh, for a certain period of time. So, for example, I hate to scare you, but you can be at a grocery store and somebody coughs in the aisle and you're in the other aisle. But then you walk through to that aisle and even though that person that um, has a tuberculosis has left the aisle, you can inhale that air. And that may be the way you get it. Now, probably not for the majority of people. Usually the people that get tuberculosis have had direct and close contact, usually family contact, with a person with an active case of tuberculosis. Um, Tuberculosis is um, one of the um, major causes of death in the world. I think it's probably second or third. Malaria, I believe, is first in the world, worldwide. There are deaths here in the United States. We've even had physician deaths. Um, it's it's be, um, tuberculosis um, is getting resistant to our drugs. Reason for drug resistance is um, multiple, but mostly it's due to the fact that people with tuberculosis start to take their medicines and then don't complete them. That's why public health authorities, if you have tuberculosis, will jump all over you and make you take uh, medication. Um, it is something we, call. in fact, sometimes they will come to your home and watch you take the pills and make certain you take them. And the authorities do have the right to do that. Uh, tuberculosis is treatable, uh, but advanced, um, tuberculosis sometimes is fatal. Um, uh, again, uh, it, I don't really know how to avoid TB. I mean, if you get exposed, you're exposed. Um, if you think you've been exposed, you should talk to your doctor. Um, there is a simple skin test that can be done uh, that they repeat after three months, and it can give an indication as to whether you've been infected. If caught early, uh, early infection can be controlled with usually um, one or two drugs very easily uh, before it becomes a very active uh, infection of severe uh, uh, pulmonary tuberculosis. Hmm. And and what would be the symptoms to that? Um, symptoms are usually cough and usually coughing up blood, fever, and particularly night sweats and weight loss. So fever, night sweats, coughing up blood, um, the things you think about, the two diseases you probably think about the most are tuberculosis and lung cancer. Hmm. Okay. Well, there you go. That's a good answer. Also, tuberculosis can be found in other parts of the body, too, uh, yes. so it isn't always yeah. in the lungs. That's, um, uh, it can be found in the intestines, the kidneys, the bones, but um, the portal or the route of entry into the human body is through the lungs, always through the lungs. So it starts in the lungs generally um, uh, at 99.99% of the time. Uh, there are uh, rarely some other uh, ways that it could be um, obtained, but it, it's basically an airborne disease. And um, if it's outside of the lungs, um, it's usually be because the lungs have healed up a little bit, but uh, it's spread to other parts of the body. And that's a pretty serious uh, in, um, condition also, and usually it will be associated with fever and weight loss. Hmm. Wow. And it, um, it is uh, complicated. Hmm. It generally takes four different antibiotics 
um, um, for um, six months of treatment to uh, treat active tuberculosis. And if you do have tuberculosis, the authorities, the public health authorities, are going to isolate you. They're going to test your family and try to keep you out of the public. Wow, that's a, that's really frightening when you're getting on and off a plane, isn't it? Uh, fortunately, it is. But it's fortunately, most of us don't get it. Um, um, and, you know, the other thing, TB worldwide, particularly in Africa and Asia, is associated with crowded living conditions. As I said, you know, the closer are you to someone tuberculosis, more likely to have it. And um, lack of access to medical care and uh, poor health in general. <laughs> Generally, Americans such as ourselves um, don't get exposed as much or, um, um, you know, we can fend it off better. But again, we're all potentially susceptible if we get exposed to somebody with tuberculosis. So, so do individuals like that have to wear a mask if they choose to go out, if they've been diagnosed um, with TB? Play, um, when they're in the hospital, we keep them confined to a room until we, we keep t testing their sputum uh, for tuberculosis organisms. And we can tell that the number of organisms is declining. And once we no longer see that on what we call a sputum screen, we allow them to go home. And then we generally isolate them um, for a period of time. And, the federal, and generally, the public health authorities want to see three sputum samples that don't have any TB in them at all. And then they'll say, okay, you're free to go out in the public. Yeah. So um, we, you know, y yes. You put a mask on them uh, when in the hospital and when uh, when they're going down the hall, um, but generally speaking, we just try to isolate the people altogether. Mm -hmm. A mask, um, a mask does provide some protection, but it's not 100. Mm percent -hmm. I mean, look at myself. I've been doing this 25 years, and, and I've been exposed to lots and lots of TB patients. And when I go see a patient that I think has tuberculosis, I put a mask on. I never knock on wood, converted um, 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 to a positive um, tuberculosis skin test. I, I hope I never do, but probably one of the reasons I have it is I have a high index of suspicion, and when I'm around somebody with it, I protect myself. Mm -hmm. The trouble with the average person at the grocery store is you don't know. Mm -hmm. You just don't know who, who doesn't have it. Now, I can tell you in, in Santa Barbara, um, the incidence of TB is really quite low. So the next time, Glenn, you go to the grocery store, I wouldn't worry about it too much. There's certain, <laughs> certain which areas. I should, I'm trying to figure which aisle I should avoid. So, for example, immigrant populations have a much higher incidence. And the immigrant populations are those from Mexico and those from uh, China. Mm. So... Go to East Los Angeles, the incidence of tuberculosis is much higher. Likewise, I'm sure there are some um, um, Asian um, areas, you know, um, um, that might have a little higher. But it really is more of a social economic issue from these areas than anything else. Mm. Um, there is certainly no um, um, TB has no respect for e ethnicity or gender whatsoever. So it just it depends on the part of the world that you're coming from where there's a higher prevalence of it. Mm -hmm. And there's Another, no way to prevent it either. Uh, 
the only way is to not inhale it and to get and to get it treated. And that's why doctors, when you have TB, they want to get you isolated and get it treated so you can't spread it to a lot of other people. Um, there was an episode within the last year or two here in town, and it was estimated that this one individual infected 35 other people. Now, fortunately, they didn't end up with all end up with active tuberculosis, but they ended up with evidence of infection and have to take a prophylactic medicine called isoniazid for six to nine months. Hmm. The other thing that you have you can always do is to make sure that you're as healthy as possible all the time, keeping your immune system strong and uh, doing all the things we spoke about earlier. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Which is why I think you were going to ask me about a health tip. Um, um, I don't know that I have a single health tip, but I, I, I believe in diet um, and uh, exercise and rest um, as much as anything. I, I myself try to exercise at least five times a week. Um, I try to get, uh, I believe primarily in sustained aerobic exercise. I moderate my diet. Um, I'm, I, I, I personally, myself, I avoid uh, um, red meat as much as I can. Um, um, I'm more of a, a fish and vegetable um, eater myself. And, uh, and I try to get my rest. Um, I think if you do those things uh, and avoid smoking, and if you've exercised most of, your, most of your life, I think you've got a good chance of living a long life, um, you know, short of um, accidental death and, uh, and uh, unforeseen cancers. Is there anything that you uh, wanted to address that we didn't get to today? We covered quite a bit. Uh, of course, there's, as you said at the beginning, you could talk for hours about important things. Is there anything that you specifically wanted to cover and make sure that our viewers know about? Well, I'm sure I'll think of it afterwards, but um, <laughs> no, uh, not, not specifically, Glenn. I just uh, really enjoyed the opportunity to talk. And, um, you know, I, it's interesting. We've covered a spectrum of things, you know, sort of health prevention on one hand and, and trying to stay healthy. Uh, so that you can avoid doctors like me in the intensive care unit. I think the best way to avoid being in the intensive care unit is to live a healthy lifestyle. And hopefully, if you do end up in the intensive care unit, you will have um, physicians that are empathetic and will do their best to uh, pull you through. If it's a Like yourself. Mm -hmm. Like yourself. I'm grateful to my special guest, Dr. Robert Wright, our special guest for sharing his wisdom and expertise with us. I want to thank all of my healers and teachers uh, throughout my lifetime. And I look forward to sharing another exploration of a quadrant of the healthcare galaxy on Magical Medical Tour with Christina next week. Thank you, Robert. Thank you, Glenn. And thank you so very much, Dr. Robert Wright, for honoring our community today with all your wonderful information. Um, and thank you, our guests, for joining us here on YHTV, uh, which is yogahub.tv. And we look forward to you joining us again next week, at Tuesday at 10.30 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Namaste. Namaste. Namaste.